Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Patrick Brown and his campaign to win the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada is, of course, well underway. And uh, over the last numbers of days, there's been an exchange between the campaigns of Patrick Brown and Pierre Polyev. And uh, we're going to get into that a little bit. But let's talk to the mayor of Brampton, Ontario, whose objective is to be the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada and then become the prime minister of this country. Patrick, good to talk to you. How are you doing? Very good. It's great to be back on your show. Let's get into this a little bit here. So as the leadership candidate for the Conservative Party, let me borrow from Pierre Polyev's campaign and say you're campaigning ultimately to be the prime minister of Canada. Has it been worth it in this campaign, which at times has been really nasty, when you're already a very popular mayor of a large Ontario city? Is the campaign, is this whole uh, drive worth it, Patrick? Absolutely. I think it's important during this leadership campaign as a party to really look in the mirror and ask ourselves the question, why did we lose the last election? Why did we win the popular vote but fail to win the most amount of seats. And this has been with two very different leaders. If you look at Andrew Scheer and Aaron O'Toole, and there's hard questions we have to ask ourselves as a party. And I think a intense debate, and it has been an intense debate, is is uh, critical uh, for a party to have to, to have that self-reflection. And so uh, I've enjoyed being part of that discussion, part of that debate, and I'm hoping that uh, we can get our act together so that we can make sure at the next election, the same mistakes of the past are not repeated, that we can be a party that has the capacity to win where we've lost before and do what Canada needs us to do, which is defeat this liberal NDP coalition that is not serving the best interest of our country. So let's address um, what's gone on inside this race for the leadership of the Conservative Party. Mr. Polyev claims that your campaign has been engaged in paying people to become members of the Conservative Party and to vote for you. You've responded very strongly to the criticism or to the uh, to the charge. Can you just share with us, please, what's going on as far as that's concerned? Well, of course, our campaign would never um, support that. We abide by all rules uh, that the party has in place. And frankly, I think that is... Pierre Pauliev needs to spend more time attacking Justin Trudeau than he does his conservative opponents in this race. And I, and I think that that attack was very intentional. It was on the same day uh, that we saw the crisis and the crash of Bitcoin. I think it was a distraction uh, um, attempt from his own economic uh, policy that is under scrutiny um, because of the, um, the, the free fall that we've seen in cryptocurrency. All right. So, uh, and you all want it. Well, not Mr. Polyev, but the the rest of you want another debate. Yes, absolutely. I think it's important to have vigorous debates during this this leadership to to be uh, tested, to uh, 
um, you know, it, it's not going to get easier. You know, the, following this leadership, whoever wins this leadership is going to have to have vigorous debates in front of all Canadians. And I think the last thing we should be doing right now is avoiding that scrutiny and avoiding, avoiding those debates. I don't think we should hide from the media or hide from debates. I think we need to be accountable and let the Conservative membership see how we handle ourselves under that scrutiny. Yeah, Canadians need to see what and know what you're about. So let me ask you what you're about then. If you become the leader of the Conservative Party and leader of the official opposition, there are responsibilities that you will have and opportunities that you will have. I like the fact that you're determined to stand with the people of Ukraine and their military and would support a no-fly zone. That's still, I think, an important issue. We spoke with the former Ukraine ambassador to Austria at the beginning of this program today. But what is of primary importance? If you become the Conservative Party leader, and then if you eventually become the Prime Minister, what, what are the, what's the issue that's of most importance to you, Patrick? I think the number one issue is we need to clean up the finances of the country. We're over $1.1 trillion in debt. We pay $2 billion a month in interest payments. When a baby's born, the reason they're crying at the hospital, they find out they owe $31,000. It's, it's chaos. And I think the number one responsibility of a conservative government, and there'll be obviously a lot of issues we need to work on, but the number one is, is, is finances. We can't treat the national treasury like a, like a printing press like Justin Trudeau has because there's, there's consequences to it. And, and Roy, you saw what happened in Ontario when Kathleen Wynne ran the same style of government, which was spending with, with, with no plan of how to curtail it. And, and frankly, I think we need to do better. You know, in the last federal election, conservatives ran on a plan that they were going to balance the, the budget after 10 years. Um, Stephen Harper would have been much more ambitious. I, I, I think we need to be a conservative government that very clearly says we're going to get back to balance. Yeah, we have to. We really have to. People do understand that, that you just can't keep spending, because if you just keep spending, your debt's just going to get higher. It's no different than on an individual or family level. It's just that the margins are much larger. So um, switching gears here a moment, you've been watching very carefully and listening, I'm sure, to the Liberals' explanation as to why they invoked the Emergencies Act. And uh, the more they speak to me, the more less, or the less believable they are. But what's your sense? Well, I think it was absolutely an overreaction. And you just look at the the tale of, of two similar incidents. If you look at how Doug Ford handled the blockade on the um, Ambassador Bridge, and you look at how Justin Trudeau handled the protest in, in Ottawa, Doug Ford didn't require an emergency act to... Um, to uh, handle the, the and end the blockade on the Bastard Bridge. I, I don't support bl- uh, blockades. I think it has a massive economic repercussions for our country, and so I get why it's important to um, to, to to peacefully um, uh, end those um, difficult situations. But uh, the Emergency Act was a, a complete trampling of the rights of Canadians, and sadly, this is not. Um, uh, the only incident that we're seeing. You know, we're seeing the rights of Canadians trampled upon, and whether it's religious rights in this country being trampled on, language rights. Uh, um, you know, sadly, we've seen a government that seems to be okay to ignore our own charter. What would you do to help this country in this regard, the East-West divide? I hear it constantly from my listeners on both sides of the Ontario-Manitoba border. What would you do to ease the pressures and to make it more agreeable uh, for Canadians to live together, to work together, to understand each other, to economically not only survive, but prosper? What would you do? 
So, you know, here's the... Here's the reality. Um, Canadians have much more in common than we do uh, differences. And I feel that right now Justin Trudeau is attempting to prey upon divisions for political purposes. He wants there to be an East-West divide because it suits his, his, his political calculus. But it's wrong. And I don't think the values of Canadians are, are, are incompatible uh, in terms of where we live. And so you know, let, let me give you an example. Obviously, uh, the way Justin Trudeau has treated the energy sector um, is uh, egregious. And I get why Western Canadians uh, are upset about that. Um, and so when Justin Trudeau is giving a speech in downtown Toronto about why he's attacking our energy sector in the name of the environment, um, he's simply doing this for political purposes. Because when I look at an issue like the environment, um, you know, I, I look at Canadian LNG. We could be exporting Canadian LNG to China that has 30% of the global emissions, helping China get off coal-fired generation that has the highest levels of intensity. Canadian energy could be part of the global solution to combat climate change. Okay. And in what world does it make sense for the environment, Roy, for me to be in Brampton going, going to the uh, gas pump and using imported foreign oil um, rather than Canadian oil that has a higher environmental standards, higher labor standards. And so I, I actually take, think there is there is consistency to the aspirations I have to, I have Canadians to, have. I have to stop you because we literally have run out of time and run past oh, the time. Sorry. My fault. My fault. This is another one of the discussions that takes place, and they're, they're ongoing. They're ongoing and ongoing. And I think the more that people become polarized, I, I guess we can say polarized. People are becoming quite polarized on issues. The more I hear theories that, well, this is happening in the world and that's happening in the world and this person is doing this and this organization is doing that, and it's all designed to control us. And there are millions of Canadians, according to Abacus polling, Abacus data polling, there are millions of Canadians who believe in conspiracy theories. David Coletto is the CEO and founding partner of Abacus Data, and he joins us on the Roy Green Show. David, thank you very much for coming on the show. Pleasure to be here, Roy. How, uh, how are we doing as people uh, across this country uh, as far as our, our doubts about what we're hearing is concerned? Can you give us a bit of a backgrounder on why the survey of Canadians, which revealed that millions of us have accepted some conspiracy theories, relating to the pandemic and vaccines? Well, we did it because I think a, n a number of reasons. One is the, the pandemic itself uh, produced a number of ideas that were being spread that were, were false, but many people we, we had heard and believed them. Two, there was the, uh, the ongoing committee investigating the January election in the U.S., which itself was based on this premise that you know, a sizable number of Americans believe that the election in 2020 was stolen from Donald Trump. And then the conservative leadership race has had a number of the candidates raise uh, ideas and debate those in, in their actual debates. And so my colleague Bruce Anderson and I wanted to, you know, understand um, just how widespread many of these ideas have have been accepted and also to, to challenge, we believe, as, as, as two people who study public opinion in Canada extensively, to challenge the idea that somehow Canadians in Canada are, you know, exempt or immune from um, this. And as you said, what we learned was, in fact, we're not doing that well. We shouldn't assume 
the kind of ideas that are spreading in other parts of the world couldn't spread here. And we, we tried to um, measure and, amp- and, and, and you know, get, a, get an empirical sense of just how many people believe things like, um, you know, the Great Replacement Theory, um, who believe that, you know, microchips uh, are, are being inserted in us by Bill Gates to track our movements and control us, that uh, COVID, um, the COVID vaccine has killed millions of people and it's being covered up. These are all ideas we, we wanted to understand. And, you know, millions of people in our survey uh, said that, that they are true or, or probably true. And that, I think, raises some really big questions. I see emails uh, almost daily from listeners who will tell me that these things are actually happening, that they're going on. And I really found your headline quite interesting because it cuts right to the point, um, cuts to the quick. COVID conspiracy belief embraced by millions. Not everybody would do that. There would be people, organizations that would couch what they write. This is right in your face. So let's look at some of these numbers. 19%, the equivalent of 5.6 million adults in this country, believe, quote, COVID vaccines have killed many people, which is being covered up. Another 25% think it's possible or aren't sure. Address that for us, please. Well, I mean, if you add those together, you're, you're, you've got close to half the country who yeah. think it, it, they're not willing to, to write it off, right? And, and one in five who say they think that is probably or definitely true. Um, you know, if we keep in mind that about 10% of Canadian adults have not received, you know, two doses of, of the COVID vaccine. That means even some people who have been, who've taken the vaccine believe this, which is, which is surprising, right? And, it, and I think it's, it demonstrates the level of suspicion, distrust, um, confusion that many people have about what governments and authorities, you know, are willing to do. I, I think it, it signals just how little trust people have if they believe that millions of people have been killed because of these vaccines and somebody's covering it up and nobody in the, you know, your world and journalists and the news media would have covered it or, or would have known, right? I think this just shows the, the depth of, of the distrust that many Canadians have towards uh, certain institutions. It's very interesting when you have millions of people who share these views, who've gotten to the point where they, they really believe these things. And, uh, and they'll also tell, tell you and tell me, that governments don't care about people's points of view, and the governments were irresponsible and 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 disrespectful during the uh, two years of battling COVID with you know with lockdowns and all of the other things that were going on. Um, what do you do with this, um, David? Eleven percent, three point three million, think COVID vaccines include secret chips, <clears throat> excuse me, designed to monitor and control behavior. Nine percent believe it's definitely or probably true that COVID was caused by rollout of 5G wireless technology as electromagnetic frequencies undermine human immune systems. What do you do with this information? Well, I think at first it's, it, it reminds us that, you know, we can't assume that, that, that there aren't people who believe this, that it can't spread here. Um, but then the question is, okay, so how do we prevent this from happening or solve for it? And that's <laughs> something that I think is, is much harder to, to to do. Um, you know, I don't think you can regulate a way or, 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 or pass a law that, that makes it, you know, more difficult for this stuff to spread. I mean, bear in mind, there's always been conspiracy theories, right? This is not a new phenomenon, but we're living in a world right now where um, technology has enabled people to, to isolate themselves, to, to, to get information that they generally agree with. Some social media platforms encourage it through their algorithms. 
But we also have, I think, political leaders, business leaders, um, those that want to profit off of people's anxieties, um, spreading this stuff and not, not, not putting it out. And, and in the mix of that is like a, is like a, a toxic cocktail that um, um, allows it to spread. So the question we have to ask ourselves is if we want to live in a democracy, the basic facts of the world, and when you've got so many people out there believing things that are absolutely not true, but if they believe them, and I live in the world of perception, not reality, when you measure public opinion, if you believe these things, then that's absolutely going to affect the way you think about other issues and how you might vote or how you might participate in that democracy. And so I think we collectively have to start asking ourselves, what do we have to do to stop this? And who's responsible for being leaders to prevent this kind of spread? I mean, Donald, Donald Trump didn't go out there every day um, after the vote in November of 2020 and say this election was stolen, this election was stolen, and even set it up prior to the election, saying it's likely going to be stolen. Most Americans who believe what they do wouldn't believe it. And so there is a responsibility among those who have influence and power not to let this happen. And I'm not entirely hopeful that's going to happen, but nonetheless, I think we need to be aware of it so we can fight back. Okay, so here's my final question. Is there a composite of the person who believes these theories? Well, it's interesting. I mean, there's no men under 45, if you have to pick a demographic group, are, are a little more likely than everybody else to believe that. But that's that's painting a picture that's not fair, I think, to men under 45, which one of them, I, I am one of those. But we do see a tendency for people who, um, for example, support or voted for the People's Party of Canada, uh, people more on the, the right side of the political spectrum than, than on the left. Um, but, but the most important driver, and this is why it crosses demographics, is if you are somebody who doesn't trust the media, doesn't trust government, any government, not liberal, not conservative, who feels deeply suspicious of people in expert or authority positions, then you are much more susceptible to believing these things. And the ultimate test in our survey was those who did not receive or get a COVID vaccine shot, around 10% of the country, were some of the most likely to believe almost all of the conspiracy theories we tested, whether about COVID or not. And that's, that's what sums it up, is this just distrust, this lack of trust in, in science and experts in anyone telling us how the world is because we're just these are these are people who are just naturally suspicious of it you're not saying people who are conservative are predominantly interested in these theories or are you not no not most conservatives although there there are if you if you compare a conservative supporter versus a liberal or new democrat for example conservatives are more likely than liberals or new democrats to believe this what's interesting is even within the conservative universe if you're somebody who, for example, identifies closely with Pierre Polyev, the front runner in the conservative leadership race, you're more likely to believe in these conspiracy theories than if you're somebody who more closely aligns with, say, Jean Charest. And so even within the conservative universe in Canada, there's, there's pretty deep divides on this. But, but we do see this tendency on the right side of the spectrum for some of these ideas to, to, uh, to be believed. And that is mirrored in the UK, it's mirrored in the United Kingdom, uh, in the United States and in other parts of the world as well. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Leaders of France, Italy, Germany, and Romania, and then subsequently... UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson met with Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky, supporting Ukraine's entry to the European Union. Somebody said to me, why didn't Johnson go with them? The other four, well, it's simple. The UK is no longer part of the European Union, and uh, Ukraine is looking to get into the European Union, and the four leaders, uh, France, Italy, Germany, and Romania, were there to assure President Zelensky that uh, the EU is very interested in having um, Ukraine join. Also, I don't know how you explain this, but the guy in the Kremlin, Putin, yesterday said something to the effect of, well, I wouldn't have too much of an objection to Ukraine joining the EU because they're not a military organization. This is the same idiot who, before he assaulted Ukraine, said he didn't think Ukraine was a country. Alexander Sherbo understands all of this. Former Ukraine ambassador to Austria, very familiar with Europe, obviously. And he's the author of Ukraine versus Darkness, Undiplomatic Thoughts. Ukraine versus Darkness, Undiplomatic Thoughts. Ambassador Sherba's book. Ambassador, good to have you back with us. The four European Union leaders visiting with President Zelensky and then Boris Johnson as well. How significant is this? Do, do, do you see this as a truly significant moment or was it um, photo op? Well, it was uh, the, the the trip uh, is nothing unusual. In the last uh, couple of months, uh, we had high guests from the West uh, every week. Uh, but uh, Ukraine getting um, this status of candidate to the European Union is, of course, uh, enormous, significant. Uh, um, Ukraine always had these uh, two paths uh, in front of her, uh, Russia and Poland. And uh, Russia was anything but successful uh, in the last uh, three um, decades. Uh, and Poland was a huge success. And we want to go the Polish way. It, it has nothing to do with uh, Russophobia or, you know, uh, us... Uh, doing something out of spite uh, to Russia. We just want to be successful. We want to be on that way. And uh, finally, we have been admitted to this way, uh, to, to this path, uh, recognized as a European country. And this is, this is huge. So this is a real message of endorsement to join the European Un Union and not just to visit by four country leaders. Yeah, first of all, first of all, uh, it's... Um, you know, right after that, European Union announced uh, that uh, European Commission uh, recommends to the Re European Council uh, to recognize Ukraine as a candidate. And just just uh, to remind your listeners um, how significant was the year 2014 and 2013, actually, when um, uh, when Ukrainian then President Yanukovych uh, said uh, we don't want to pursue this way and hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians went to barricades and uh, to the streets 
demonstrating against it. So um, this is our dream. This is what we are ready to fight uh, for. Um, this is big. What does it say to you that Putin yesterday said words to the effect that he doesn't really object to Ukraine joining the EU? Well, Putin's words uh, mean very little. You know, he has been uh, proclaiming that uh, NATO uh, can't uh, extend any further, and this is absolute priority for him. But when uh, Finland and Sweden uh, announced that they will be joining the NATO in the next couple of months, all of a sudden he said, yeah, well, I'm fine with that. I just don't mind uh, Ukraine entering. So he... Now, one day he says, says one thing, the other day he says other thing. For him, it's important to, you know, to that his, um, as they call the deep Russian people, uh, so the people outside of Moscow support him. And uh, um, he says whatever these people would would like, um, and that's that, that's all. That, that's his populism. Yeah, Ambassador, with the European Union now putting Ukraine on the path to becoming a member of the Union. Does this in any way at least provide a sense that the on-the-ground reality, the fighting on the ground, will this? do you think this could impact the fighting on the ground? Because the sense that we're getting increasingly, and this is news reports I'm, I'm receiving, is that the Ukraine military is being stretched very thinly now, many soldiers dead and wounded, and military equipment and munitions are, are, are running low. Do you have a sense that this can change or impact what's going on on the ground? Well, my sense is, uh, yes, we are suffering immense uh, losses. Yes, we are uh, bleeding, uh, and we are losing our best sons and daughters. But uh, nowhere did I uh, sense, uh, you know, any note of desperation you know uh, putin is still stuck um in severodonetsk a city 30 kilometers from uh, uh february 24th line so um, uh, and they are suffering immense losses too um but i for us uh, uh, not only for us uh, this war is uh, mostly about the spirit, about uh, determination, and uh, Ukraine's determination remains very high. This decision by Brussels, by the European Union, would only increase it. Yeah. What happens to the Ukraine grain harvest? What's your sense? You understand the diplomatic channels better than most. What is, what is likely to happen? Well, it's uh, it's now uh, not a Euro European, Ukrainian issue, it's a European issue and a global issue. Uh, as I understand, uh, there are ways uh, to export uh, at least uh, some parts of the harvest uh, via railways. Uh, by the way, we noticed that Russians uh, are uh, bombarding uh, our uh, grain fields um with um, with um you know this inflammable uh, shells so that uh, uh, they want to burn as much as possible um but uh, nevertheless 70% of uh, our um 
which of the harvests from last year have have been uh, planted this year, and our absolutely heroic farmers um, are doing everything that uh, to, to make sure that Ukraine uh, is uh, at least to some extent with a good harvest this year. The weather is very good. Um, so I, I hope that uh, together with, uh, with with Europeans and with Ukrainian railway, uh, we somehow, at least to some extent, solve this problem. My next guest, I've said this many times, to me just defines what a great reporter is. Sam Cooper, globalnews.ca. And Sam has been reporting on the Cullen Commission in British Columbia for several years. He's been on this program uh, talking about it. We haven't had him on for a little while. Good to have him back. Sam, great to talk to, to uh, talk to you. How are you? I'm fine, Roy. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I want to remind people your book is Willful Blindness, How a Network of Narcos, Tycoons, and CCP Agents Infiltrated the West. Willful Blindness, great book by Sam Cooper. All right, so you have a piece uh, on Global News Now, BCLC boss, warned execs of no bonuses if casino revenue targets not met. Man, that just, that rings all sorts of bells. So let me start, though, with this, Sam. What's the overview of Justice Austin Cullen's final report? said no evidence of political or personal corruption, but he does challenge the former B.C. liberal government. What is he saying? Yeah, that's right. Uh, the, the overview is uh, this was a very significant report. Uh, it cost about $15 million, so we hope that it got some good work done, and I believe it did. As you say, uh, Cullen found fault with senior elected BC officials going back, uh, namely the, the former premier, Christy Clark, and the former gaming minister, Rich Coleman. And what he found was they were among the, fish, the officials that for starting in around 2010, were repeatedly warned by their subordinates that uh, this these massive cash transactions that looked like drug money were flooding into the casinos and uh, and nothing, essentially nothing was done. So Commissioner Cullen said from 2008 to 2015, all levels of government and those officials I just named, among many others, uh, really, you know, they, they are to be found at fault. But he said, as you as you indicated, he could not find corrupt motives. Uh, something that really w w was very powerful to me was for the first time I saw the figure that Commissioner Cullen put out. He said, and brace yourself for this. In 2014, the peak year of money laundering before finally the RCMP came in with a deep investigation in 2015, and I think scared everyone involved in casinos. Okay, so 2014, $1.2 billion in large cash transactions flooded into BC casinos. That means that single gamblers of over $10,000, that's a brick of cash essentially in their hand, that totaled up all those individual transactions, 1.2 billion. Cullen said that not all of them were suspicious, but many, if not most of uh, that volume of cash bore the indicators of criminal proceeds. Remember, a, a big pushback for the casino industry for a long time was, well, you don't have proof this is crime cash. The, the cops haven't proven this is drug money. Cullen said, get out of here with that argument. It's weak. This has all the indicators of criminal cash. So to me, that radically expanded the official estimates of how much money was laundered in BC in this Vancouver model that we've talked about, Roy. And uh, my estimate before was about $2 billion. I can say that now that it was a great conservative estimate, but I'm now expanding it higher. So uh, those were the, the headline findings for me. 
Yeah, he wasn't, the commissioner wasn't very impressed with the federal government's anti-money laundering approach, and he also did not spare the RCMP from criticism, Sam. He didn't. In a lot of ways, uh, you could almost argue that he went a little bit easier than he should have, in my view, on British Columbia officials and uh, executives in the industry. And he really slammed the RCMP and FinTrack. Some would say pretty rightly. I, I think FinTrack really got the biggest sting of all. Uh, Commissioner Cullen, if we read his words, he's saying that FinTrack's vast intelligence gathering in you know private financial details of Canadians and others is a waste. He's saying it almost never leads to prosecutions. Uh, it costs a lot of money and it's just totally ineffective. Uh, you know, I'm sure FinTrack would have something to argue uh, back to that. Uh, they they will say they're really hand-tied by privacy laws. They they're not an investigator; they're an intelligence unit. But the 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 bottom line here is this gave Cullen the uh, I would say the uh, the basis and the power to uh, advocate for a British Columbia intelligence and anti-money laundering unit. That is. The, the province taking the power away from the federal government to investigate these very serious international investigations. And if you're following me, Roy, that could lead, I think, to some devil in the details types questions around constitutionality and uh, whether a provincial government you know, would ever have the capacity to, say, investigate a crime coming from China, Iran, or Mexico, because those are all countries that uh, the people involved in the commission heard. Uh, those countries, high-level cartels, were the ones really at the root of the problem in the Vancouver model. Yeah, and I noticed as well, noted as well, as did everyone following the case, that Fred Pinnock, a former commander of the RCMP's Illegal Gaming Task Force, not impressed with that report, he told Global News, people need to go to jail for this. Well, that uh, Mr. Pinnock, uh, he was, he, he's worn this, uh, this hearing and what came before it uh, really on his heart and on his mind. And he's not alone. One of my main sources, Ross Alderson, I've heard briefly from him. He's in Australia now. Uh, his quote was, this is a whitewash. So the people that were deep inside uh, the bowels of the industry and believe they saw direct, uh, we're talking about the old school forms of corruption, that would be when people actually do get benefits. People on the inside of casinos, managers, politicians do have very close relationships with high level organized crime. Uh, uh, Roy, I can tell you those are the exact same things I hear from my sources in intelligence and the RCMP and international law enforcement. So I would say that Pinnock, Alderson, some of the other whistleblowers, uh, they're right. They're, they, look, you cannot have $1.2 billion in cash come into BC casinos, most of it connected to crime, and there not be very deep and serious corruption. But uh you know, Commissioner Cullen could only rule on the evidence that was put in front of him. And in their defense, they say, if we had 10 years to dig into this, we would have gotten, maybe we would have got to those really deep and dark places. We only had two years to fulfill our mandate. So, Sam, what's the takeaway? What, what, what happens now? What's the ultimate uh, result of the Cullen Commission and the, the report going to be, do you think? 
Well, now it's in front of uh, the, the British Columbia Attorney General, David Eby, and uh, he has 101 recommendations in front of him. I believe one that will be very impactful was uh, uh, Cullen's uh, recommendation for a BC anti-money laundering commissioner. This would be uh, an officer of the BC legislature, independent. Uh, Cullen uh, really hammered the point that this, this uh, new commissioner cannot report to the government of the day they will be accountable to the people of British Columbia. And his supporting argument was for, uh, you know, up to a decade, maybe more. Uh, the uh, government after government has not understood or had the will to tackle money laundering. And uh, he said that needs to change today. So I believe that will be in, an impactful recommendation. I'm not... Uh, again, the BC Provincial Anti-Money Laundering Unit, it's really a statement of a federal failure and uh, taking the power uh, within the province, but it really butts into a lot of problems when you can think that this transnational crime involved is involved in every province, most specifically Ontario and Quebec, and uh, you really do need a federal level uh, uh, investigator uh, that has good laws, on, federal laws on their side to tackle this problem, and I, I don't think a province can do it even if Ottawa allows that unit to take flight. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 